All right, well, let's go ahead and take a moment and dismiss children for Children's Church. So any who are four years old up through second grade that would like to can head to room 107. Well, a few weeks ago, as a Christmas gift, one of Debet's relatives gave us a portable pizza oven. And now, in my personal opinion, there's probably not too many things on earth that can generate more daydreams than um, thinking about a hot loaf of bread or a hot uh, pizza crust baking in one of those ovens. And maybe even right now, your stomach is already starting to growl a little bit thinking about one of these things. But, But I quickly learned that it's not just as easy as taking something like that out of the box and using it. There's a bit of learning curve. And so, um, there's some skill and some extra know-how on how to get those ovens up to eight, 900 degrees and keep them there and how to use the right uh, pizza crust and some of the utensils to turn the pizzas. So not knowing much at all about how to do this, not having done it before in my life, I, I turned to the most trusted place in the world to learn these things. I went to YouTube and I just searched uh, how to do all of these things. You know, when you, you go to YouTube, you can watch other people do it. They can make mistakes. They can talk to you and uh, speak you through these things. You can learn and compare what to do and not to do. And, and we live in this kind of era. We live in an era of the world and in the era of history with a great number of things at our disposal. Books and magazines and especially the internet where we can learn so much by imitation or by comparison, looking at photos and videos. It's not just cooking, but home repair and auto repair and how to get stains out of clothing. Really, the the list is endless of things you can learn by comparison. I'm bringing all this up to make the point and, and to ask this question, is there anything like that in the spiritual world? Is there anything that's uh, tangible or visible as far as a point of comparison goes to know whether this thing that we're doing called church is pleasing to the Lord and accurate? Is there any comparison that we could put our lives and our practices and our experiences up against to see, is this the way that the Lord would have this done? Now, we certainly could look around other churches in our modern 21st century Uh, There could be books we could read. There could be conferences or seminars to go to. But how much better would it be for us to be able to go back to Scripture and to look back 2,000 years ago at the early church and and listen to and, and peer and lean into what they believed, what they did, what they practiced, how they followed Jesus Christ as their Lord. I think what we'll find this morning is that living together as a church body, it's a, it's a fairly simple calling. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but it's a fairly simple calling that sometimes we can overcomplicate, make things a little more complex than they need to be. So today I'm excited to study scripture with you. Together as a church body, we'll be able to peer back into some of these activities of the early church and really get a visible lesson, something we can tangibly look at and see how some of these earliest Christians followed Jesus. So I've titled this morning's message as we're walking through this wonderful book of Acts, titled this morning's message, A Church That Follows Jesus. 
And there's going to be some very specific and tangible things we can look at to say, is this true of us? That will challenge us and that will comfort us in knowing that we are a church called out and following Jesus. I love the phrase that he used in the Gospels where Jesus has simply said this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's a pretty simple formula, if you will, for what would define a Christian, what would be a church. It's people that hear the voice of Christ, he knows us, and we follow him in whatever he asks. So I trust that this morning's message will be not only rewarding, but also instructive as we look back at the early church here in Acts chapter 9. So turn with me to Acts chapter 9 this morning. We're picking up um, exactly where we left off last Sunday, and that was the Apostle Paul, who at this time and in this uh, era as we're walking through the book of Acts is known as Saul, and Christ appeared to him in a miraculous way, a way that we don't know has been replicated in any other time in history, but appeared to Saul and completely flipped his life around where Saul was pursuing the church for the purpose of murdering, imprisoning, eliminating the church. And now we're going to begin to see Saul becomes one of the church's greatest advocates. He begins proclaiming Christ. Instead of destroying, he is now looking to grow followers of Jesus Christ. So this is a very interesting era of church history that we're looking into here in Acts chapter 9 things begin to really turn uh, and turn in an extraordinary way. And we pick up this story in verse 10 this morning. Saul has been blinded by this appearance of Christ. He can't see, Scripture tells us, for three days. He has to have the entourage that he was traveling with to lead him into this city named Damascus. And this is where we're picking it up. Saul is without sight. He's being led into the city. The Lord is going to now begin to put some miraculous pieces together. We see this early church beginning to form here in this city following Jesus. So let's look here in verses 10 and down through verse 19. We're just going to walk along here in these verses. But we're going to notice, first of all, that this church that follows Jesus is a church that embraces new converts. And we could even say, as we're looking here at Saul, a church would embrace very unlikely and at times even suspicious converts, at least for a time. But this is going to be a beautiful unfolding here of the church, recognizing Jesus' transformation on the life of Saul and welcoming him in to her fellowship. Look with me at verses 10 through 12 here in Acts chapter 9. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Here in verses 10 and 11, we're introduced to a man 
named Ananias. This is not the Ananias of Acts chapter 5 that lived in Jerusalem where he and his wife lied uh, to the Holy Spirit about their giving to the church. This is a totally separate person. This is Ananias of Damascus. He is a believer of Jesus and he lives in this city. And I'm going to talk more about the city here in just a couple of moments. But I'd like to talk first about Ananias. If you could go to that next slide there, John, there is a picture um, that I'm showing you here in just a moment of what is believed to be the actual home of Ananias. Uh, what's beautiful about some of the ancient archaeology in other parts of the world is that they reach back a lot further and actually have some of the history uh, that we can benefit from today. And so this picture, it, it's down underground a little bit, and there's been a church that was built on this location since about the 5th century. So the tradition is, is pretty reliable that this would have actually been the home of Ananias. Some believe that Ananias took Saul back to this place and baptized him here in this very location. The situation is that the Lord here is giving a double vision where he has given one vision to Saul to go into the city and meet this man. And he's given a second vision to this man, Ananias, to go and meet Saul. When the Lord calls to Ananias, he replies with this uh, very proper traditional answer of readiness. Did you catch that there in those few verses? Ananias, having been called by the Lord, simply said, yes, or here I am. This has taken place throughout uh, history in, in the scriptures. Abraham, being called of the Lord, said a very similar phrase. Yes, here I am, Lord. Samuel, when he was called and didn't quite know what was going on, and Eli told him, the next time you hear that voice, just simply say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then Isaiah the prophet, the same thing, being called of the Lord, a heart disposition to just immediately with readiness say, yes, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do? A beautiful, tangible, specific picture of what a follower of Jesus Christ in their heart is all, all disposed and ready to do. Yes, Lord, what do you have for me? What would you have for me to do? The Lord directs Ananias here to a very specific street that even has a name and a very specific house and gives the owner of that house and his name being Judas. And when Ananias would go here to these specific locations, he would find this man named Saul. And he would find Saul praying. And Ananias would be the one through the power of the Lord to help him regain his sight and give him further instructions. Now, before we go any further, I've got a few pictures I'd like to show. And I hope you'll find these interesting and rewarding to put us in the context of what is taking place here. This next picture I have is a map and I mentioned this last week, if you, say, you might say, where is Damascus? Damascus is about 135 miles north of Jerusalem. So you can see on this map, uh, Jerusalem being on the, uh, on the southern end of this map, that uh, someone taking a route from Jerusalem to Damascus would go along uh, the, the Jordan River, maybe pass under the Sea of Galilee there, about in the middle of the, of the map, and then turn east and head northeast to Damascus. This is in modern-day Syria. 
And by the way, that journey would have been about a six to seven day journey. In biblical times, Damascus had a population of about 150,000 people. Today, still there, has a population of about 2.5 million people. Here's an interesting fact about Damascus. It is believed that this city is the oldest continually inhabited city in the world. The oldest continually inhabited city that we know of. For about 5,000 years, people have lived in that specific city, in that specific location. And so it has some very rich history, uh, which gives us um, some tremendous ability to look at some pictures today and put us right in this very location with the street that is still there named Straight Street. These places can still be visited. We'll take a a look at a couple of pictures of them this morning. This next photo I have for you, it's not going to be very exciting because it looks more like an open field, but this is the specific area that Saul would have been traveling just south of Damascus when Christ appeared to him. He was struck to the ground and became blind for three days. This is where he was visited by that bright light. In the background are some of these mountains. This is Mount Hermon. And this is a valley that he would have uh, certainly traveled through heading into Damascus. Even though the road is gone, uh, this would have been the very area he would have traveled through. The next picture shows us what is known today and has been called um, St. Paul's Gate. It's called St. Paul's Gate because it is believed to be the gate that Paul would have entered into the city of Damascus. You'll notice here I've got some arrows pointing to three different openings. Back in Saul's day, the middle, <clears throat> excuse me, the middle section of those openings would have been the larger opening for carts and wagons and horses and donkeys and things of that nature to go through the middle. And the two openings on the side would have been for the pedestrian, uh, pedestrians to walk through. So the next slide will show you a more modern day, and and I've had to go back to use some older pictures around the turn of the century, 1900, 1890s, 1900, some of those photos before everything has been modernized uh, like it is today. But this is a modern picture of that very same gate. You can see that they opened up the middle. They still have those two smaller gates on the side, but now cars and trucks and everything else travel through that center gate, allows the traffic to move freely through it. A couple of more pictures here. I've got a map uh, that shows you uh, just the ancient layout of the city of Damascus. So back to Ananias for a moment. He was directed to a street called Straight. And I've tried to make a little yellow highlight here in the middle. This is Straight Street. And you can see where it gets its name. It just runs very straight through east-west opening of the street Um, The gate of St. Paul's Gate, which is also known as the Eastern Gate, would be right here. And I'll show you a picture later where it's believed that uh, Saul was let down over uh, the the city, um, uh, the walls, and into freedom and headed back to Jerusalem. This is just a map that would give you a little understanding of the layout of the city of Damascus. This straight street was about 40 to 50 feet wide. It had some covered walkways on each side. And it was to this street that the Lord told Saul, go to the house of a man named Judas. Now we move on to verses 
13 and 14. Actually, let's go back to, I got one more picture for you that just shows a look down straight street. And you can see that it was a, a, a street that was largely commercialized with shops and things like that down both sides. Uh, today, it's almost covered entirely with, uh, again, still commercial shops and things of this nature, but straight streets still there in Damascus even today. It's uh, just interesting that we can peer back into some of the history, put ourselves at that moment even right there. We move on to verses 13 and 14 in our text, though. Now, having seen how the Lord is setting this meeting up between Saul and Ananias at the house of a man named Judas. But verse 13 now. Ananias answered the Lord, Lord, I've heard from many <clears throat> about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. So we'll remember from last Sunday that is exactly why Saul was going to Damascus. He received letters from the high priest that he would go, and if anyone was naming the name of Jesus, he was going to arrest them, bring them back to Jerusalem, and put them on trial. Ananias has heard of this. He knows Saul. He's heard the reputation. And so he's telling the Lord, Saul's reputation precedes him. And, and Ananias here is probably hardly able to believe what he was hearing from the Lord. And so he attempts to inform the Lord a little bit about this situation. Lord, uh, Saul, well, let me tell you a little bit about Saul as if the Lord didn't know. Verses 15 through 16, the Lord is going to reply to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. We won't spend a long time on that phrase this morning, but just consider that for a moment, brothers and sisters that the Lord chooses instruments for his work, that we are but vessels carrying the precious gospel, being used of the Lord for however he gifts us, calls us, and sends us. And what, what a beautiful phrase this is. He's telling Ananias, go. Saul is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Lord answers back, and, and what a beautiful phrase, that Saul would be a chosen instrument. But also Saul would learn that his life and his ministry would not be one of comfort and fame and ease, but the Lord would tell him up front very clearly, Saul, your life, even though it is a life of ministry, even though you will be a chosen instrument, it will be a life of suffering as you carry the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the sons of Israel. We continue on in verse 17. How is Ananias going to take this reply from the Lord? So Ananias departed and he entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me <clears throat> so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized 
and taking food, he was strengthened. <clears throat> there was no more discussion from Ananias' point of view with the Lord. There was only obedience at this point. He entered the house of Judas. He found Saul and he greeted him. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> we got to linger here just for a moment in order to understand the gravity of this situation. Saul, he was a murderous enemy of Christians. He was zealous. He was fiery. He was dangerous. And he had the authority and the backing of Jewish leadership to inflict damage on Christians. That is all of the weight that he is bringing with him. But God moves in Saul's life. <clears throat> and Ananias immediately calls him here, brother. Did you catch that? Ananias is being asked of the Lord to go and to visit with Saul this enemy number one of the church, and the first words out of Ananias' mouth when he meets Saul is, brother, brother. That takes great trust on the part of Ananias. Lord, I'm doing exactly what you've asked me to do. Obedience is what you will receive from me, and so I go. And so there's this great faith and this trust on Ananias' part to go and do exactly as the Lord asked him to do. But this also must be great comfort on the part of Saul. He spent three days praying, thinking about his life mission to annihilate and eliminate the church. Now he's going and he's in this house, he's waiting and now some of these very church members, these very Christ followers that he went there to destroy are going to come and meet him. I wonder if Saul is curious, how are they going to greet him? How are they going to address him? He, he's blind. He can't see anything. Are, are they going to get a couple of cheap shots in on him? Are, are they going to berate him? Are, are they going to mock him or, or make fun of him in some way? And here's Saul, the very first words he hears from his enemies, his brother. Welcome. The Lord has made you one of us. What a tender, comforting word to hear from Saul. Ananias is faithfully obeying the Lord. Saul hears this tremendous comfort. And I just wonder today, brothers and sisters, as a church, are we living with the expectation that God can still save anyone? Are there people in your life that you even know that maybe you've even lost praying for? You've, you've left that off of your prayer list thinking or being convinced in some way, shape, or fashion that they're unsavable. The Lord, that person is so far gone. The early church certainly would have been living with this expectation that God could save anyone if he could save Saul. And then, in addition to that, the church was willing to embrace anyone that Christ had called and transformed their life. 
anyone whom God had called to salvation. They had an expectation and they embraced, even calling a great enemy like Saul, brother. If God had chosen him, God had transformed him, he was welcomed into the church as one of them. This is a, a great challenge to us as a church. Whom the Lord takes interest in, we take interest in. Whom the Lord chooses to comfort, we should comfort. Any Christian who is naming the name of Christ and whom the Lord has laid his hand on, we should be welcoming in as brother and sister. When we properly understand the grace and the purposes of God, we will be ready to call transformed people brother and sister. What a, a tender meeting this is between Ananias and Saul. Well, this is a mark of the following church. We look at this here in verses 10 through 19, and we see that this early church embraced new converts, even one as dangerous and with a reputation as Saul. But secondly, in these next couple of verses, we see that a following church of Jesus also is eager and readily proclaiming Jesus. Look with me at verses 19 and following. For some days, Saul was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called on his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So Ananias took the lead in calling and embracing Saul as a brother. Now the rest of the congregation there in Damascus follows. And so Saul is embedded in this new Christian community and is with the disciples at Damascus. That is now he, how he is now referred to. He is embedded. He's with them. He is part of their community. And Saul is an excited and eager new convert, as new converts often are. He's spending time in the synagogues, but not for the reason that he originally intended. He intended to go there and to arrest those who were naming the name of Christ that he could find. Now he is going there proclaiming the name of Christ to all who will listen. Instead of trying to destroy the name, Saul is now proclaiming the splendor and the glory and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He's announcing that Jesus is uniquely the promised one of God. That Jesus was the Christ. That he is the son of God. And now Saul's life, this transformed life, becomes a testimony to the townspeople who saw and heard him and were amazed at this change. This one who came here for one reason has completely flipped and is here for a different reason. Saul was very vocal. He was zealous uh, originally of being anti-Jesus, of being anti-the way, of being anti-Christ followers. But now he is passionately and eagerly speaking of this living Lord. 
Brothers and sisters, we've noted this all along the way in the book of Acts so far. All of this is happening because Christ Jesus is alive. He is a living Lord. Because he was a living Lord who livingly appeared to Saul, Saul is now proclaiming, Jesus is not dead. He has been raised from the dead and he has ascended to heaven. He is a living Christ. That makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. And Saul now speaks of this living Jesus as the promised Messiah of Israel. And our verses tell us he grew, he increased in his speaking ability. Uh, at this point, the more he talked and the more he spoke, he would have been combining facts and truths and scriptures and experiences to build and strengthen the case for Jesus as the Messiah. Saul's own life became a testimony as a powerful display of the living Christ. He was sharing God's work in his life, and all this did was increase his ability to do it more and more. And, and again, this is another mark of a true church that is following Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that we take the opportunity to speak of all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done in our lives. And the more that we do this, the more increased that we do this, the more skilled and the more we grow in strength of doing this more and more. I know at times at different intervals throughout the year, we have uh, dinners for six here at the church where you can get together with other brothers and sisters and just share a meal. But it would be settings like that and settings of fellowship when we get together with one another that I trust we are taking the opportunity to speak well of Jesus, to speak often of Jesus, of what he has done in our lives currently, of how he has saved us in the past, and all that he is and all that he does for us. It grows and we are strengthened and we increase in our ability and skill to speak of Jesus the more we do it. So we should strive to do it more and more. We are either growing or we are shrinking in our testimony of Christ. And we see Saul here eagerly proclaiming Jesus wherever he goes. We see a third feature in this passage, though, beginning in verses 23. We'll read down through the verse 30. This church that is following the Lord, they also watch out for one another. They keep an eye out for the livelihood and the well-being of one another. Look with me at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples there. But they were afraid of him. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them, how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him 
And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Now, there's a lot of activity going on in these few verses. There's two different groups who are looking for opportunity to kill Saul. One of the groups is in Damascus. When he flees there, he goes to Jerusalem. There's another group in Jerusalem that takes up the same task. Saul leaves and he flees. The Christians in Jerusalem are suspicious of Saul. They're apprehensive to welcome him in because they have heard of who he is. Saul ends up fleeing Jerusalem and he travels all the way back to his hometown, which is Tarsus. But in all of this flurry of activity, we see something unique and beautiful here. We see the church looking out for one of its own. We see the church looking out for each other. And we, we, we pause for a moment as we think about Saul first, um, his departure from Damascus. Uh, the scheming that happens there in Damascus is a little less formal than what, than what would have taken place in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, the official Jewish leaders with their titles, the Sanhedrin, they would have been involved in these activities. <clears throat> but here it was more of a grassroots rising up, and, and it was an informal agreement for these men to do away with Saul. So they position these spies. They have a stakeout, if you will. They're to be on the lookout for him. And they positioned people at all of the gates of the city where people would have been coming and going. There's an interesting phrase in verse 25 that's used. It says, his disciples, this is Saul, his disciples helped him escape. Already he was emerging as a leader, a leader and he had pupils that were learning from him. They use a, a large, sturdy basket. They tie ropes to that basket. They let him down safely outside the city walls. And, and I've got a picture here. Again, this is an older picture from probably somewhere in the 1890s uh, before all of this has been kind of built over and modernized. But this is the traditional location believed to be Paul's or Saul's escape outside the city walls. There was an opening, likely a house that would have been at the top here, about 20, 25 feet off the ground. They take this large basket, would have been sturdy enough to hold a grown man. They tie ropes to it. They let him down. And at least we see here in this photo, even if this isn't the exact location, we get a sense of ancient cities that were walled all the way around for protection. You had ways that were in and out, and those were through the gates only except for in this instance, when Saul's friends looked out for him and sneaked him out of the city. Saul flees, he heads back to Jerusalem, but the followers of Jesus were afraid to include him. So Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, Barnabas stands up for Saul. He vouches for him and his conversion and verse 28 says that Saul was able to go in and out among them freely. He was one of them. They were looking out for one another. Just by way of application here, learning all of this provides us with some concrete examples of Christians taking one another in as family, watching over one another with great care. And, and this has always been a distinguishing characteristic of Christians. I hope that that's one that we practice 
and that we grow and increase in here at Lexington Community Church. Watching out, not just physically, but spiritually for one another. We close our text here this morning looking at verse 31. This is a summary verse. In all of this early church with these early followers of Jesus, they're embracing new converts. They're proclaiming Jesus eagerly. They're watching over one another. Finally, we see that they receive great care from Jesus. Look with me at Acts chapter 9, verse 31 as we close. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. We come to this summary verse that seems to kind of put a, a descriptive cap on all that is going on in the early church in these early years. These three regions mentioned here indicate that the gospel has spread well outside Jerusalem and the, the entire native Jewish areas have been converted, even mentioning Galilee, which has not been mentioned up to this point in time. Our text tells us that the church overall was experiencing peace. Peace. The peace of God. Now, we pause for a moment to acknowledge that this peace, it cannot mean the absence of problems and persecution, because it certainly has all of those. But it is a peace that is experiencing a settledness of soul, if you will. This is due to the presence of Christ. This is due to the comfort of the Holy Spirit and the leading of God. It is the direct ministry of Jesus that produces these wonderful and blessed effects that we see here in verse 31. This peace, this building up, meaning it's making the church strong, like working a muscle out. It is growing in its ability and its strength, and it is multiplying all of these beautiful effects of following Christ and Christ giving his care and nurture to this church. The church was walking in the fear of the Lord. This doesn't mean that it was cowering in a corner, being timid and trying to avoid the Lord, but it means being in awe of the Lord's power, being in awe of the Lord's work, and following Jesus in whatever he asked them to do. And as we do this, the Holy Spirit gives strength to God's people and comforts them in their walk with Christ. The results of all of this being peace, growing strong, and multiplying in number as the Lord adds to his church. I just want to say by way of conclusion this morning, passages like this are, are such a blessing to us today that we can look back with comparison, we can look back with instruction and ask the question, how did the early followers of Jesus look in their lives? How did they listen to the Lord? How did they follow him? And, and passages like this this morning provide a very tangible and, <clears throat> and concrete picture of what it looks like for a church to follow Jesus. We embrace who the Lord embraces. We welcome family members as he adds them to our congregation. 
We speak gladly and eagerly of all that Jesus is and all that he's done. And we look out for one another, not just physically, if there's physical harm coming, but also spiritually for those that might be in spiritual danger. We look to connect people spiritually to the body of Christ and to Christ himself. In all of this, the Lord nurtures, he cares for, he grows, and he blesses his church. You know, sometimes we just complicate it a little too much. As we follow Jesus, he waters and nurtures his church. And what a great challenge to consider this morning and what a great encouragement this is for us today as we line up in lockstep behind Jesus and follow him as his church. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Father, we thank you for this instructive text this morning, how you were transforming someone like Saul and putting him on display even for all of the people to see. Lord, we consider all of the lives that you have transformed in this room here this morning of people who are not Christ followers, but who now are. And how this is a, a beautiful picture of your grace and a strong and powerful testimony to us that, Lord, your work is still happening today. So we, we prize you, we praise you, we cherish all of this work, and, Lord, we want to be followers of you, that we might say yes to you in whatever you ask of us. Lord, we know that as we do this, you will bring us great comfort and care, that you will lead our church wherever you would have us to go. We thank you for this passage this morning. Would you press it to our hearts? It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.